Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Tonight, I'm joined by our elite, irregular panelist, Dr. Bruce Garrick. Hello, gamers. So, it's not quite winter, uh, but it is a war game, and it is a war game that I spent much of the winter playing mm-hmm. uh, with, this, uh, with this guy right here. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to be talking about Mark Herman's Empire of the Sun, uh, mm. a strategic-level, card-driven war game of the Pacific Theater of World War II. Uh, Bruce, this was one that you've been keen to get me to try for at least a year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think I remember last year you, I saw you at the tail end playing a vassal session with uh, our friend Don Stone. Mm-hmm. And I think Don Stone wrapped that up by saying he thought it might be the greatest war game he's ever played. He wasn't sure, <laughs> but he was he was inclined to think it was at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So, Bruce, what is Empire of the Sun? Uh, where did it come from? Yeah, uh, I think uh, it came from the very fertile design mind of Mark Herman, but I think it also came from a, a couple other uh, sort of confluences of uh, situations. One is that... Uh, it came from the card-driven design mechanic, which sort of solved some problems in game design that I think designers are having a problem fitting history into their games. Uh, so they kind of offloaded it a little bit into a different mechanic, which I think really made a lot of... It saved a lot of fiddliness in gameplay. Um, it also is the product of, I think, people being more willing to... I don't quite know how to put this, but accept a interesting combination of mechanics if the effect is something that has historical verisimilitude, which isn't, I don't think it's something that gamers were really willing to do, you know, 20 years ago. This game, by the way, is uh, 14 years old. It came out in 2005. And uh, at that time, I don't think it got the credit it deserved because I don't think people had the, um, well, there are a couple of problems. I think I don't think people had sort of the vocabulary of game mechanics to deal with it quite yet. Remember, 2005 is the same year that Kalos came out, and we all know how terrible that game is. But uh, at, at, in 2005, it seemed like this amazing revelation in games where you had worker placement and you had this very high level of interactivity and people could, you know, block each other and there were different roles and it was all so shiny and new and whatever. Um, and I, I don't think that uh, gamers really understood what Empire of the Sun was at the time. There was some errata too. I don't, I think the gate, the rules are much better written now than they were before. People really understand how to read them. Um, I also think it was a, it was a victim of the fact that, um, Vassal wasn't really as uh, as pervasive because, uh, you know, people didn't have high-speed internet, and even though you, you don't need high-speed internet to play Vassal, the idea of simply being on the internet and playing with people is everybody was playing by email at that time. You, didn't, you, you never thought of connecting to somebody and talking on, uh, you know, Discord or whatever, because that's not what you did. And module and so, quality was nowhere near what it is today, yeah, right? I remember when absolutely. I when I would look at Vassal modules from around that era when I first heard about it, uh, immediately it sort of made made me recoil uh, a little bit because yeah. it looked like a very uh, washed out CAD designed version of board games that were already pretty, uh, you know, quick and dirty themselves. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the 
video cards of people who would play these type of things couldn't handle uh, a lot of scrolling, uh, you know, um, whatever. Yeah. 24-bit color. But that's yeah. interesting that this... So you kind of view that, like, this comes out and it has a bit of misfortune in that uh, even though the war game discourse is often a little bit separate from the broader board game discourse. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, mm-hmm. in 2005, one of the major revolutions happening in tabletop gaming period is that Euros are really starting to break through. Yeah. And all the attention is maybe being pulled onto those and smaller, more revolutionary acts in a more traditional looking format are perhaps mm-hmm. underappreciated in that context. Uh, I'm not going to go that far because I think that um, people, I mean, war gamers aren't dumb and they do know a good game when they see one. I just don't think that, um, I I mean, if you're saying that the the Euro audience was better able to recognize good games than the war game audience was, I'm not sure I'd go that far. I would say that uh, games with this amount of sort of innovation require a polish that they didn't, that that Empire of the Sun, frankly, didn't have at the time. And I think that, uh, you know, the rules weren't, the, the rules weren't the clearest. Uh, I remember having some problems with them and just, but again, I didn't give the game a fair shot because yeah. it just didn't happen. Um, but then when Don and I decided we were going to pull it out and play it again, we actually played it uh, a couple of years ago, we played the South Pacific scenario when it came out in uh, in C3I magazine, and, and we really liked it. And uh, then we sat down and played the whole campaign, and I've been trying to teach it to people ever since. And uh, it's it's a really extraordinary game, and I think that uh, people really need to um, need to play it. And those of us who have played war games will realize what an achievement making a Pacific theater game like this is. So let's talk a little bit about that, because I think when I tend to think about Pacific War Wargaming, and I haven't done a ton of it, mm-hmm. uh, but on the tactical level uh, is probably where I've done the most of it. And a lot of that involves pushing rifle squads uh, through dense Oof. cover. Oof. Um, uh. But on a strategic level or an operational level, uh, it is a theater that often... I find runs aground on some of the traditional bugbears of gaming mm-hmm. in general. Uh, mm-hmm. Naval transport rules are mm-hmm. a consistently difficult thing to a make convincing mm-hmm. and sensible, and b make remotely fun uh, for the complexity mm-hmm. that they introduce to the game. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing, and I've seen this come and go, but a lot of uh, a lot of Pacific War games that I that I have encountered. Um, gosh, I think maybe even Koei made one uh, once upon a time. But a lot of them have had uh, this idea of if you are not literally pushing planes around vast expanses of ocean hexes looking for enemy fleets, they at least have abstracted like search mechanics. Like the mm-hmm. idea being that uh, fleets may or may not spot each other, but uh, you know, a, a feature of this of the genre of this field is the idea of sort of the carriers groping for each other in the darkness right. of the fog mm-hmm. of war, which again yeah. is perhaps uh, accurate to how a lot of carry operations were carried on. But once again, a difficult thing to make fun and entertaining, uh, given the fussiness they introduce, and that I think is a lot of the sort of pre 
conceptions I bring to uh, Pacific War wargaming. Well, it's just unfortunate that that everything seems to have to have to uh, sort of hang up on this carrier mechanic because you know uh, the carrier mechanic is is obviously very dramatic, but um, you know yes, air power was the key to Pacific combat, but the war in the Pacific was basically uh, a campaign for air bases, not for I mean the carriers didn't carry the the war to Japan, the air bases that they captured did so. Um, I, I think that in that way, um, you know, it's hard to it's hard to use the it's hard to have the strategic element incorporate the carriers. Uh, it's very easy to have the operational level incorporate the carriers, but then at the operational level, the game to do the entire campaign, the game takes forever. I think one of my favorite games when I played over and over and over um, in the early '80s and mid '80s was a game called Flat Top uh, by the late S. Craig Taylor. Who um, who designed a really great system? Um, the, he did a game called CV, which is Midway, and then he did uh, Flat Top, which was uh, the South Pacific uh, Solomon's uh, battles, and uh, that was that was the that was really I would say a tactical level game where you really were moving hour by hour. You were moving your ships, you were moving your planes, you were searching for things, uh, and it I think you did battles like Eastern Solomons and, and Coral Sea really well. What it didn't do was anything that took longer than a week, because you can imagine if you're playing a game that has turns that are an hour long, I mean, how, how many turns are you going to be able to play? Um, now, Mark Herman, who designed um, the game uh, Empire of the Sun, also designed a game called uh, Pacific War, and that was in 85. That, I think, excuse me, best operational game uh, of the Pacific War that exists. Unfortunately, it 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 just doesn't work as a as a um, as a strategic level game. It's just too long. Now, once again, my friend Don that you uh, have played with and, and mentioned, we uh, conspired to get a wargaming uh, mini vacation in. Uh, I had to go to I, now I live in Portland, but I used to live in North Carolina. I, I went there on business. And Don took some time off, and we managed to, to fit in a very long weekend of playing Pacific War. And we played uh, a scenario of the Pacific War, and it took us like three days. Uh, and it was a great fun, and it showed, I mean, in three days, I don't think we were ever bored. Uh, I'm curious, just, in three days, what do you cover? Uh, we covered like, I think in three days, we covered two months, maybe. Mm-hmm. Three months, maybe three months. I can't remember. Gosh, that's a good question. Yeah, that's a really good question. Well, I mean, it is right because, like, it's one thing that that's great that you were never bored. That's cool that it, that it holds up. But I think there's this this other thing uh, where there are a lot there are there are war games that sort of call to you because they promise kind of a massive experience worthy of the subject matter. Um, the idea that this is something you will set up and keep set up for months, and maybe someday you'll have time to uh, play through an entire war. But then there are others that, and I, I think my inclination increasingly uh, you know, tends in this direction, a game where I can sort of, where it unfolds on a uh, short enough, like, real-time scale, uh, that I can s- sort of see the strategic arc of my decisions playing out. Uh, what, three days isn't isn't short enough. 
three three days is uh, a bit a bit more of a commitment than I can usually make. I'm not saying there's not a place for those games, but I think in three days I would like to get more than three months three months of the war. Uh, but done. it's a complete scenario. I mean, the scenario's done. Yeah, it's it, it's not like it's not like we set up a giant game and then only got three months of uh, sixty turn scenario done. Right. We got the whole. We did the whole. Played the whole scenario. Okay. I mean, that's what it's designed to do. We didn't quit early. We finished. What three months was it? Out of curiosity. Uh, it was maybe it was six months. It was yeah. the. Uh, it was basically uh, the. Guadalcanal, uh, the sort of um, the the Japanese uh, attempt to uh, the, the last the last Japanese push against Guadalcanal. Okay. So it would have been it would have been after Coral Sea around the time of Eastern Solomon's. Yeah. Now, when we talk about operational, is the focus mostly on the navy here, or in like that scenario, are you also moving like marine battalions? Oh, you have plenty Henderson? of ground. You have plenty of ground forces. Yeah. Okay, so so it's about. Sort of that zoomed-in level of, like, air supporting infantry. It's, it's Well, Guadalcanal is still one hex. Okay. It's just that the water in between is... is There's a lot more water in between. A lot more hexes in between uh, Guadalcanal and Port Moresby. Okay. But Guadalcanal is still a hex. Interesting. So when Mark Herman... we You know, we you and I had the opportunity to... Um, you know, we, we sort of did a beta test... Mm-hmm. Of us uh, doing a vassal session mm-hmm. of Empire mm-hmm. of the Sun. Mark Herman was good enough to hang out with us. Uh, yes. We got a little bit into the discussion of how he approached Pacific War and how things changed mm-hmm. between Pacific War and Empire of the Sun. Uh, and I, I think we are going to get a chance to continue that conversation yes, as we you will. and I continue that. Continue Mark that promises game. we will. So we will. We all have committed to do that. So for the people listening, yes, there will be a be, there will be a new and better uh, a streaming of that. And it ended on a cliffhanger. Uh, so now, oh, sure now we have to see uh, mm-hmm. how things go because the Japanese air force in uh, China, Burma, India was effectively destroyed mm-hmm. uh, in a single turn. But so was the British army, uh, yeah. and so we're we're at a very uh, decisive moment in that game. Mm-hmm. But. Uh, I don't think I got the chance to talk to Mark too much about when we think about what Pacific War is modeling, how, like, what actions does it depict? What actions are you undertake, undertaking as a commander uh, in, in that game uh, to sort of suggest, to, to sort of evoke the theme of World War II uh, Naval Operations Command? Okay. So <clears throat> the thing that, that Pacific War does so well is that you have sort of an order of battle and each uh each turn you get to well each turn they're they're different the rounds there are turns there are days there's a there's a whole sort of vocabulary to the way the turns are are set up but um the uh the idea is that you have an order of battle and that you activate certain aircraft and ships for that operation right and what you have available for activation drives what you're going to do and how many activations you have drives what you're going to choose. And there'll be times where the Japanese have to be on the defensive because they just, they don't have the ability to muster all those, to coordinate all those forces. There'll be times when the Japanese have a lot of ability to coordinate forces and the U.S. has to watch out and, and uh, sort of defend against them and that there's a, there's a, there's an intelligence uh, element to it too. But I mean, in, in Pacific war, you move the fleets, 
you search um, and you uh, and you launch airstrikes and you roll the airstrikes that you have the ships and you roll them and uh, all the all the things that can happen with that uh, do happen uh, you know torpedo bombers dive bombers you've got uh, you've got a real you know sort of tactical resolution there so it's a it's a it's a it's an operational game that does include a significant amount of tactical combat it's a, it's a very satisfying it's a really satisfying game i very highly recommend it um it just is not going to get you from uh coral sea to uh to okinawa just it's not going to happen which is very much the the sort of lens that uh empire of the sun takes uh now this one is this is a game where doing the entire Pacific War is uh-huh. within reach. Like that, is, that, that yes. might be a very long day. Right. Uh, it might be a weekend. It might be, but it is still something that like is achievable, especially as you learn the rules and pace of play mm-hmm. begins to increase. Uh, you and I played a bit of one of the longer scenarios. We did a 1942 start, uh, so basically right mm-hmm. in the wake of Pearl Harbor, and you showed mm-hmm. me how uh, the game does have a sort of grain to it that like encourages the Japanese to uh, basically achieve a lot of their historical conquests. Uh, in 42, and roll up a great great many allied positions. And then you and I spent a lot of time playing ni- the 1943 scenario, which mm-hmm. is apparently balanced for competitive play. Mm-hmm. Uh, both sides have opportunity for offensives uh, in different places. And both sides are still in a position where a few wrong moves can basically lose them the war. Uh, which is a very interesting balance point. And then we played a little bit into 1944, which I found just fascinating because uh, it really brought home, I think, in a way few things have, how much the carrier operations of 1942 do not look like the carrier operations of 1944. Uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about technology and just the, the arc of the war uh, as uh, you know, as we go on, but uh, yeah, so let, let's start with with Empire of the Sun and sort of its strategic view of the war. Uh, what is it? Mm, do we want to talk about mechanics or what its argument is? What is it? What is it foregrounding? No, do you think it? Do you think it has an argument? Uh, it's not a trick question. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm thinking about it. I guess. I think it does in that I think it I think it has an idea about what the most important things are on the strategic level. I think that's what it has. It has it has features it wants to exaggerate and throw into stark relief and it has other things that it just doesn't want you to worry about too much. Uh for instance, it doesn't really want you to worry about at all ever um the cut and thrust of naval operations. Those are going to take care of themselves from a strategic level. Uh, What it does want you thinking about is, I think constraints is the way Mm -hmm. I put it. I think it is a game that is focused on modeling historical constraints. Okay. And there are two major ones that it really exaggerates and emphasizes. One is the the effect of air power. Uh, how transformative it is about the meaning of space and geography in naval warfare. Uh, this and you, it, you may not fully grasp that until you see what happens when air cover is stripped away 
and suddenly an entire sector of the ocean basically becomes inaccessible to you uh, because enemy enemy air, aircraft can operate with impunity. You cannot sail anything through there unless it is a unless it is basically escorted uh, by by naval units uh, who can who can sort of engage in combat. The other element I think that it is trying to emphasize is the imperfect information that commanders had to labor under. This okay. idea that if you looked at the paper strengths in theater or in different areas of operation at any given moment, mm-hmm. it might seem like. Oh, one side clearly had an advantage and they could have done whatever the hell they wanted at this moment. They wasted it. They didn't know. Uh, But what is interesting in the way this game models operations and actions, it is a game that it feels like there is always an enemy phantom fleet lurking over the horizon that may or may not be there. But you have to assume that it will be. And that is... An interesting idea, because the comparison I would make is naval war games that maybe are a little less abstract. A ship has a position on a map, and it's there. It's just there. Right. Now, if there's right. fog of war, the enemy, sh- the enemy ships may not know, know that, but the ship can't transport magically across time and space to the right place at the right time. Like, if a ship is outmaneuvered, that's the end of the story. The fleet's out of position. That's it. And that makes perfect sense for an operational-level game. Uh, here, because in part, I suppose, because we are dealing with something on a slightly wider timescale, uh, this is a game that unfolds across seasons of the war, three-month periods, uh, rather than, uh, you know, smaller slices of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, what you have to wrestle with more is this idea mm-hmm. that no matter what you are trying to do, it will take long enough that there is a good chance the enemy will catch wind of it and you will end up fighting eh, whatever engagement the enemy wants to throw at you, uh, which I guess is a perfect time to talk about the reaction mechanic. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So that's that's a that's a good uh, a good point that the the game. So there's there's no it should be <clears throat> should be pointed out to people who haven't played that there is no hidden element to this game. Oh, there's no there's no hidden information. Uh, well, shouldn't say that. <laughs> Obviously, there is the, car, the hand is hidden information. But on the map, we don't have any hidden units. Uh, everything that's there is there. The, the, what, you're, what you're referring to is that a unit that is uh, in place may or may not end up being able to react to the operation that you're running. So uh, you have a hand of cards, and each round, generally play seven or so, or so rounds in a, a game turn, and game turns are, are four months long. Uh, you play the hand one by one, alternating. Each play, one player plays one hand, uh, one card, and the other player plays a card. And those cards allow you, as the player, to uh, to activate units. And these units form what's called an operation, or uh, sorry, an offensive. And that offensive can trigger a reaction by the other player. And the offensive depending on how many units and the, the, the integra- integral to this is uh, the idea of headquarters and their logistic uh, value and how, you know, the Central Pacific can activate three, uh, three units plus whatever logistics values on the card, whereas, you know, Japanese uh, South Seas HQ may only uh, one. So if you have uh, the same value card is more, uh, the Americans are able to, to launch a, a better offensive than the Japanese would be. 
uh, in the in certain you know all things being equal. But uh, but that offensive may meet resistance. It may not meet resistance. You may uh, get surprised. There are cards in the uh, in the uh, deck that allow the Americans to ambush, which is sort of a, a code breaking uh, midway type uh, mechanic. Uh, if the enemy does not react, then it's a surprise attack, and they can't do anything, and you sort of get a get a free shot, as it were. Um, so yeah, you you really do have to assume that uh, whatever the enemy has available could come and get you, uh, and sometimes you'll get lucky, and sometimes you won't, and that I think is meant to uh, to sort of recreate that that the complete uncertainty about you know where those ships are there, but are they actually there at that time? Because this is one of the other abstractions that people kind of don't like about the game, which is that uh, well, why you know my carriers were right there, why didn't uh, why didn't they get to react to this, you know, to this enemy movement? You say, well, you know, A, the uh, uh, operational intelligence was low or operational readiness was low, right? Those those carriers aren't sitting there for three years. They may go and, and, and get refitted. They may have some, you know, repairs. They may be moving between, you know, they're patrolling a certain area and they're just not in that area at the time that this is happening. And you have to, there is abstraction, which I think really bothers some people, uh, but it's, I, I, I mean, I'm not a game designer, so maybe there is a solution to this. Maybe a, a genius game designer can solve this problem. But from what I can think, I, I find, it, find it hard. No, no game, let's put it this way. No game designer has found a way to solve that problem without this level of abstraction. So uh, I can't, I, I, I'm not too confident that, that you could. Yeah, one. Uh, I was thinking a lot as I played this about uh, the introduction to James Hornfisher's Neptune's Inferno. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's sort of laying out how the naval battles around Guadalcanal are really where the United States Navy learns what it is to be a wartime fleet. Uh, that prior to that, even though Pearl Harbor is kind of this massive wake-up call, um, this is still not a fleet that is used to just like being under alert conditions for extended periods. It is not used to fighting extended actions in hostile environments. And there's this line from the intro that I, that I came, that I found myself thinking about a lot as we okay. played this game, mm-hmm. uh, where he talks about the, the lessons that the sailors and officers learned aboard these ships. And one of them was, if it looked like the enemy was coming, the enemy probably was coming and you ought to tell somebody, maybe even everybody. Um, And that is how this game often feels. Like, you will be looking at, in a lot of my examples, I'm going to be thinking from the U.S. perspective because Mm -hmm. that's where I played most of the time. But you'll be Mm -hmm. looking at the stack of Japanese warships Mm -hmm. uh, at Rabaul or Truk. Mm -hmm. And they're there on the map. They're in harbor. You conduct an operation and declare a battle hex uh, mm-hmm. because you'll be invading, uh, you know, say... Bougainville. Yeah. Uh, okay. Somewhere in the Bismarck Sea. Mm-hmm. And you have to assume that if the Japanese player decides they want to make a fight of it, mm-hmm. you might face any configuration of those ships you see at those two headquarters, mm-hmm. uh, depending on... You know what card you played, uh, what ops value it had. Uh, we'll get into that in the in in a moment here, but it's it's this idea of those ships 
could be there or they could not be. Uh, but it is not entirely in your control. You do have a chance of getting lucky. And sometimes this game encourages you to maybe roll those dice a little bit or maybe create a a plan that forces the other player into making some hard choices about like what are they going to contest and what did they just kind of have to let happen. Uh, but I like... Well, I, would say, I would say that that's the crux of the game. Yeah. Is to, is to force the other player because... The other player is going to know that, you know, they have all these threats coming and you can't react to every one of them. As a Japanese, you can't because you don't have the, you know, sort of staying power for it. So how are you going to create enough problems for the U.S. that they can't concentrate everything on what you're trying to do? So, yeah, I, I, I agree. Yes, that's that's the best kind of game, right? You, you, you make your opponent make hard choices about what he can and cannot deal with. Yeah. And... In the process of, make, of forcing those choices on them, you are, of course, making your own hard choices. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is one of the other things that, and, and now we'll, we'll start talking a little bit about the card-driven design, because mm-hmm. I think this is an example of one that works really, really well. Yes, I agree with you. Um, you know, if, if you heard us talk a little bit about Paths of Glory last year, yep. I kind of had this feeling that a lot of those cards, while historically themed, they had nice art on them, mm-hmm. a lot of them didn't really feel like anything, right? Okay. You had you had a card event that would, like, make something happen mechanically, but sure. did it necessarily feel like, ah, that, like, particular moment in uh, World War One? Eh, hard to say. Uh, and then there was the ops value for, for just kind of a more direct action. Uh, here, I, I think it benefits a little bit from the Pacific Theater having enough uh, sort of signature moments that maybe that that question of theme is a little bit easier. There's so many operations and landings you can sort of have a card for and then create an effect that roughly gets across the scale of that operation. But nevertheless, you're staring at these cards and you will have the event on them. And uh, let's... Um... Oh, gosh. I, I keep forgetting the name of it. Is it... Which? Operation Round... Uh oh hell, which one? Oh, it's the uh, forty-three operation, June thirty, I think, uh, where they where they start landing everywhere in uh, the Bismarcks. Um. Oh, you mean on on New Guinea? No, 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 no. Uh, cartwheel is it? Cartwheel? Car- it's cartwheel. Cartwheel. Yeah. Okay. Cartwheel. I I don't recall. Um. But you will have you you will have a card in the game that might allow you to make a massive. Uh, naval operate like make a make a to undertake to undertake a massive amphibious operation, uh, hitting multiple locations all at once. Uh, you know, one of those things that Allied High Command would spend months laying out in advance, uh, and you could execute a really bold stroke, uh, complicated operation using this card, uh, way more than any ops value could give you. It will give mm-hmm. you an ops value you will not see. Uh, you know, if you play, if you some cards, if you play it out of the right, if the of the of the historically correct headquarters, mm-hmm. the ops, the the uh, logistics value of that card, uh, which is basically how many activations you'll get out of it, mm-hmm. um, can be something like a half dozen, uh, which then is combined with whatever the natural strength of that of that HQ is, which mm-hmm. means you can be activating like you know ten units. Uh, at, a, at a stroke, which is which is a pretty massive operation uh, in this game, but the trade-off there is a lot of those really powerful operations cards. If you play them as an event, um, 
are also powerful uh, for the enemy to react to. Uh, they're easily detected. And uh, the, the square of the value you were getting, I suppose, is that the enemy is only going to get the ops value of the card while you're getting the event value. But the trade-off is you are probably doing something that is far more detectable uh, to the enemy. On the other hand, you have a lot of cards that maybe have a low ops value, but that also means the enemy can't do as much to react, and it is maybe an easier action for you to sort of smuggle under the radar, that it will have a higher detection threshold uh, for the enemy to be able to sort of scout out with their intelligence and and see what you're up to. And so I, I, like, this, I like this tension that exists as you're sort of examining your hand uh, between do you want to undertake some sort of massive, um, you know, overlord-style, multi-prong, uh, simultaneous landing, or do you maybe want to just play a kind of a crummy card and just see if you can just maybe sneak a, sneak an undefended island uh, out from under the enemy or just launch a quick airstrike against a vulnerable target? And see if you can get one for free. And I and I like that a lot. Yeah, I think that the the way in which Mark has made low ops cards really valuable is something that I don't think has been achieved in any other one of these games. Uh, it, the the way in which a, a one ops card it has its own really unique sort of clear advantage. It's not better than a three ops card, uh, but it does have advantages as opposed to other games where you're basically like, well, I have a weak card. I guess the only thing is that if you have an opponent event on it, uh, it's not going to be as bad an event. But th this game doesn't even have that problem because there <clears throat> you play. This is very, very sort of old school, right? I mean, that's how um, that's how uh, Paths of Glory was. You had a or is you have a, an, a central powered deck and an allied deck. Um, this is the same way. You have an allied deck and a Japanese deck, and um, you know you. But your your low value allied cards do have a value. You the Japanese will only be able to re react. Uh, first of all, they have a much lower intelligence number to roll, so they must be more likely to be surprised. And second of all, uh, they will have a much shorter operations radius because they'll have to use your one value uh, to, for their you know, the planes will only get, you know, one uh, one jump as it is using the range. Uh, naval units only get five movement points and, and uh, ground units only get one movement point, which often is not enough for them to move at all. So um, that's a very, uh, it, it, it's, it's a, if you have numbered cards as a mechanic, it's very hard to have, to make a game in which, the higher number of cards aren't just always better than the lower number of cards. And for some reason, I mean, Mark has made low numbers better than high numbers in some way in a very historical context. So you don't, not only do you have a, a very interesting way of, of integrating the mechanic into the game, but the mechanic itself takes on this historical significance that fits perfectly. It's almost, I mean, it, I, it, it's, it's really extraordinary, I think. Yeah, I, I am surprised it hasn't been adapted more places. There's some mm. ways in which it mm. in which it lends itself. Oh, you're killing me. Oh, you're killing me. Oh, are there are there, are there, have there been examples or just your no, mourning no, lost no, opportunities? Just, no, I'm not mourning anything. I that's, this is this is a pet, pet, pet peeve of mine. Uh pet peeve of mine is that uh 
I, I don't, I, I always think, you know, uh, this is a great game. And everybody's like, oh, well, if this works great for the American Revolution, why can't it work, you know, for uh, the, um, I don't know, the Boxer Rebellion? Or why can't it replicate the uh, Bush Wars in the Congo in the 1960s, right? I mean, it's just, it, it, everything becomes a, 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 a cool system that you just put historical things onto rather than a considered design that came out of a, uh, a, a desire to s- simulate something. That's true. But so when I, what I was thinking about, as I was saying that, was that uh, I was thinking a lot about, there's two things here that I see a little more broadly applicable than just the Pacific Theater. And I'm, I just think they're interesting okay. ways of handling this. Okay. Well, One is are. this idea of the intelligence check, which we should spell mm-hmm. out really quickly here. Um, so every time somebody plays a card, uh, depending on whether you play it a, a, as an event or or an operations card, uh, you don't need to worry too much about that uh, difference here. The point is that the other side gets to roll a d10 uh, to see if they roll low enough uh, to detect the operation being undertaken, and uh, the uh, the the uh, the value of the card being played. Uh, affects that role, a more powerful card also means a more detectable operation uh, in in general. And so what that means is, again, like if you are playing a weaker card, there is a greater chance the enemy will miss it. And then we sort of referred obliquely to this, but uh, the value, the operations value of the card also acts as a multiplier on unit movement uh, so that a high operations value card means that, for instance, if you wanted to sortie the entire U.S. fleet out of Pearl Harbor and sail it to the mid-Pacific, if you have an ops value 4 card, uh, I think that might actually be doable. Uh, You might need... I'm trying to think. Is it doesn't is an ops four enough to get you like to for instance to carry out something like the raid on truck? From where? Um can you do it from Pearl? I don't think you can get to from truck to Pearl with an ops three now. Okay. Um but yeah. Which is which is which is, by the way, uh the reason that the US had to you know, the the you had to uh, get other bases. I mean that that shows you the the limit I think that the limits of the Ops cards uh, give you sort of a, a an idea of what a an, a military could achieve, you know, could mobilize for a certain operation period, operational period of time, and that's how you know you can't just send ships sailing from uh, from Pearl Harbor to Saipan. Uh, the uh, that is the 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 need for these air bases and these anchorages is what drives the Americans across the Pacific. Uh, I think it just does it very well. That the whole mechanic demonstrates that. If it's a it's a better history lesson, I have to say it, it it's such a good history lesson. I mean, I've I've read tons of stuff about the Pacific. Uh, you know, I have book bookshelves worth of stuff about it. Um, but I don't really feel like any book showed me the flow of the campaign and the necessity and the the rationale for the campaign as well as a game like Empire of the Sun. You're like, oh, yeah. well, no wonder I, I have to take a Niwa talk. I mean, no wonder Rabal is such a such a uh, important place. No wonder we don't even have to re- invade Rabal. No wonder we can just bypass Rabal and 
you know, cut it off with uh, with air air power and uh, starve it out. You know, there's all sorts of things you can do uh, on the in the in the game that you that I mean, you can do in a book, but it it just yeah. it's it's a, it demonstrates so well for you. Well, and there's a lot of like if you play. Um... You know, it's easy to like look at the map, look at a map, and think about well, if ships could sail this far, like why so many landings? Why mm-hmm. take so many of these islands? Why couldn't right. you just pick off a few of these really key ones and just get across the Pacific in half as many steps? And mm-hmm. one of the things that this game really spells out is because those sort of long distance, like like you know lance strikes uh, you know across the sea mm-hmm. uh they're hard to pull off there's not a lot of those moves uh to, to to be had uh because they are you know more complicated to take more planning but to actually sort of maintain any kind of like predictable operational flexibility that you can mm-hmm. like utilize and leave you mm-hmm. your yourself space to react to mm-hmm. uh yourself flexibility about where your next step is and, and keep the enemy guessing mm-hmm. you actually do need a lot of those intermediate steps so that you will have places to take meaningful, you know, war-winning steps with those one or two ops value cards, right? That, you know, you're, you, you don't need to be sorting a massive armada across half an ocean every time. You can't do that. It's, it's too hard. What you need to be able to do is have a quick uh, to be in a position where you could theoretically strike at three or four different key locations with almost anything that could be in your hand um which is a cool thing that's brought out here but what what this this brought to mind is just um it captures very well i think a reality of a lot of campaigns this idea that more powerful more uh more pre-planned offensives have a cost with them in terms of their likelihood to be detected. And then the resistance that will materialize uh, in the execution of that plan just by virtue of its size. Right. So I was just, I was just thinking like about the uh, intelligence check and the operations check. I was, I was thinking a little bit about like how, uh, you know, been doing a bit more reading on world war one as well. Uh, how often the big, massive, like, elephantine assaults end up failing, despite being planned along the lines of smaller, more local offensives that succeeded to a surprising degree. Um, and it, it just it's a pattern you see a lot in World War One, where a lot of times the small local attacks where a new tactic is being tried out, A, it's a novel new approach, and B, it is such a small thing that there's no, there's no massive buildup for anyone to key off of. Uh, that achieves actual like local surprise, and you you, you see unexpected gains happen there. Uh, but when you're trying to pull off, uh, you know, say uh, the Somme, that's a very hard thing to conceal, and you're basically committing to the fact that it's just going to be strength on strength. Uh, and I'm surprised I haven't seen more war games try to adopt some of this because it's a very because the other thing is it's a very novel solution to creating the fog of war without i don't know without something extremely fussy or complicated right um you know the yeah i agree i agree you 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 establish a time frame you establish the forces and then you establish an intelligence condition and 
I mean, that's great. Now you have to find, I'm sure, I guarantee you could take that mechanic and force feed it into, you know, take a giant hammer and pound it into whatever historical situation you wanted. But I think it works particularly well for the Pacific. Would it work well for something else? Don't know. I haven't thought about it that much. Um, you know, in land combat, the, uh, you know, large offensives were often known to the opposition. They just didn't have the, yeah. um, you know, in some cases they weren't, but in many cases those were intelligence failures. You don't have the equivalent, um, though, of a fleet materializing right. in a key strait right. at the right moment. Yeah, yeah. right. You don't have the, you don't have this idea, you know, you don't have this, this problem of distance because... The, true, the, the front lines are the front lines, right? That's why they're called front yeah. lines. Um, but in, uh, in the Pacific, they're not front lines. They are, um, you know, they're, they're positions that are either going to get attacked or may they may not get attacked. And they may end up being, you know, behind the putative, you know, front line just because it got bypassed. And then nobody's, nobody's going to bother to invade that island. It's just going to, you know, surrender at some point. So, um yeah, I think the, I think the way I, it's very hard for me to be honest with you, to separate these things out very clearly because, um, excuse me, the um, the way in which this game incorporates all these elements really feels like you can't you can't separate them because of how tightly things are tied together. Like you'll you'll be making a move, and you'll say. You know, if only I if if only this thing were one hex closer to whatever, right? And you think, gosh, you know, if I if if this were one hex closer, then I could use a three card to do this. And I promise you that that hex is one hex too far away for a reason. And it, it's not like Mark Herman took Pacific geography and just you know said, oh well, I'm just going to move Japan a little further away from Pearl Harbor so that you know I can have this mechanic. No, it just it's it's a it's a it's a really amazing example of design being fitted to the situation that exists. There's the map, and there's the way in which Mark then decided on you know movement factors and supply and what the pace of the game would be and how far you could move anything at any given time and uh you know that the air zone of influence which is you know the key to the whole game really it, it all sorts of fits together in a way that you can't say well we could just change this a little yeah. bit or change that a little bit it, it all just it, it all has to work together and it does and it's it's a it's a i think it's a very it's, it's a rare game that does this so well it is an incredibly seamless uh, experience. Um, and the other thing that is hard to do justice to until you've played it is that, so again, we've been talking a lot here about you're sitting there trying to figure out like, you know, how am I going to break the stalemate on New Guinea? How am I going to break uh, the sort of this, this Japanese, uh, you know, fortress system of islands uh mm -hmm. you know in the, in the bismarck sea uh how am i going mm -hmm. to pull these things off mm -hmm. but this is a war happening in multiple places and there are sort of threads like the the thing that you're you're wrestling with here a lot is this idea that you might have a very good series of moves lined up to 
turn things in the South Pacific in your favor. You might be sitting mm-hmm. on a hand that, like, damn, you could you could really bust that whole thing wide open and maybe end this mm-hmm. war a year, a year early. That would be awesome. Mm-hmm. And sure. then things start to go sideways in uh, China, Burma, India. And then, because now, like, it might be the Japanese player launching an offensive in there. And, uh, for instance, uh, I had a really memorable card uh, in, one, in one of our sessions uh, that, that proved to me my undoing in the end uh, because I, 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 my eyes were bigger than my stomach uh, with it. But mm-hmm. there was a surprise attack card uh, that mm-hmm. allowed the Japanese player to, with infantry only, no air support, uh, mm-hmm. get a massive bonus to their attack roll. Uh, and I was able to do that to good effect. And you have to know that the Japanese player has cards like that in their hand, and they yep. could, at a moment, uh, you know, kind of overturn what looks like a pretty thorough stalemate in, uh, you know, on the on the Indian border. And once that starts happening, whatever you might have lined up for action in the South Pacific, suddenly you might have to scale it back. Like, okay, I can only do half of that because right now I need to start shoring up what is happening uh, to the Commonwealth armies in in Burma. So now I need to start bringing So how how do you feel about that? How do you feel about that? How do you feel about the fact that the allies, that the British in Burma going sort of folding up in front of a big Japanese offensive means that the uh, the U.S. is going to sort of have to hang back in the Solomons. Um. Well, I like it just as a player because to me that is an interesting tension, right? Like, yeah, it sure I, is. Like that is it's interesting. I I never thought I never looked at that and thought, but that's two different chains of command. That is two different war industries that are powering both of these wars. It makes no sense that the Commonwealth getting worked in Burma is going to paralyze U.S. operations in the South Pacific. It never Mm -hmm. occurred to me that that didn't really make a great deal of sense because Mm -hmm. as a player, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, oh, this is a really naughty problem. I need to sit back and I need to... And so to a degree, like it's an example of if it's a satisfying enough problem... Um, I probably won't, I, I probably won't start like picking at the veneer of historical accuracy too much, uh, over that issue. On the other hand, I will say this, uh, you know, I've been doing a bit of reading, uh, you know, because, <laughs> because I've been playing this game and I think at a certain yep. point as I got started to get really frustrated trying to uh, figure out what the allies are supposed to do in 1943, uh, mm-hmm. I started reading more about this. And one of the things that does emerge is that. A lot of things in the Pacific Theater are also hashed out compromises happening at conferences between uh, chiefs of staff and mm-hmm. at the highest level levels of the allied governments. Mm-hmm. And so you have cases where things going wrong for one ally mean that war material is redirected uh, and things are put on hold so that more forces can be allocated to make up the difference somewhere else. And so to a degree, I can also sort of hand wave this away and say, well, in terms of how this war was fought, and in terms of resources given to commanders, people were constantly put basically on starvation rations when it came to being able to undertake offensive action because first, Germany had to be defeated, and second, uh, 
The British were also depending pretty heavily on American aid, uh, you know, on their own fronts. And so action in, if, if the British start losing in India, you could argue, well, the British are starting to like contemplate sending more divisions over to India to salvage that situation. And they're asking us support in Europe to make up the difference. And that ends up working its way back to MacArthur or Nimitz. Sure. Yeah. I, I Hey, you, you have hand waved to the, to a degree that Mark Herman would be proud. Uh, and I don't say that, you know, oh, I say it a little bit sarcastically, but I think that, uh, you know, yes, that is a perfectly reasonable um, explanation. I think that um, oh, purists would, that would infuriate them. Um, but I think what it recognizes is that we're, we're playing games. No game is going to... Uh, is going to um, replicate being the, uh, you know, I mean, who are you really playing in this game anyway? You're not playing Nimitz. You're not playing MacArthur. Are you playing Ernest King? Not really. You're certainly not playing George Marshall. You're playing this weird amalgam of personalities, right? Um, You're not playing Roosevelt. You're not playing Churchill. So, yes, I mean, the game is a representation of actions. And I think the it's not that the game needs to convince you that these things are realistic or, you know, plausible. What you just described is the, you know, the, the effect of the British committing more to India, so they have less commitment in Europe and the US. Have, the, the, the game doesn't have to uh, convince you of that to be successful is that the game is successful because you're convincing yourself that the game works, that that's, that's what's happening because the, the verisimilitude of the game, the, the way that the game brings you into the historical situation is really hits so well and encapsulates sort of our general historical understanding of the Pacific theater, the way it worked. The game really gets at the essence of that in a way that, it all feels like it works. And so therefore, you can easily fill in those holes and say, yeah, that's, well, of course, the Americans were, Americans had to redirect those divisions to uh, to Europe. Or, uh, you know, hey, they had to, um, they had to commit more shipping to the Atlantic because the British were uh, taking it to, uh, to India. And so, you know, yeah. So I think that that's, I think that is what shows how successful Mark Herman has been. Because you think of that sort of, sort of supposed logic and then you just figure oh yeah no this makes sense that works well and ultimately what you know uh as um you know captain captain reno says and uh you know in in casablanca but everyone's having such a good time uh and i think that's the other part of this right is to a degree when the chips are down in burma uh and i'm trying to figure out if I can go ahead with the uh, New Guinea offensive like I planned, because the, J- the Japanese positions are teetering there, I can get this thing done. Can I get this done without having everything fall apart in Burma? Uh, I'm not really. I, I don't really care that. Mu- I don't worry that much about the historical reality that it's trying to get at, mm-hmm. because at that point, what sure. I've got is just um, a really good board game problem. 
uh, yes. that, it'll have me sort of sit, you know, sort of sit, leaning back from the uh, table and just sort of contemplating for a few minutes and maybe asking mm-hmm. for a beer. Sure. Um, okay, so I was also thinking a little bit, uh, but we should talk a little bit about these other theaters because sure. there are other dimensions here. It is a strategic level war game. And there are mm-hmm. strategic level concerns to think about uh, beyond simply where can my fleets go, uh, where can I project air power at any given time. And I think maybe the most, the place where this stuff is most prevalent is in China, Burma, India, uh, because that is to a degree a place that will be, that lends itself most readily to being a bit of a um, ground pounding slog. For both sides, uh, but it is also a place where there is a potential to, for a lot of victory points, to be won and lost. Uh, and it is a front that, if not paid attention to, uh, can get away from you very fast uh, in ways that are catastrophic. And it touches on China. And that's another interesting part of this uh, that because you have. China is sort of modeled in two ways in this game. So maybe what I'm talking about, like, let's talk about China, Burma, India. Maybe what I actually want to talk about here is China uh, for a moment. Yeah, I, th- I was gonna, I was gonna say, I don't, I never really liked the term China, Burma, India, because well, I understand what China has to do with Burma and India and the hump. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't. China is its own completely separate problem, and uh, and one which which I have to say, Mark Herman punts a little yes. bit. He, he decides, well, let's just abstract all those units in China. And the Japanese player has the option or opportunity to draw down divisions in China to reinforce the land situation elsewhere. But that will give up the ability to force a decision in China, which in itself is not that likely to happen, but is always a threat. And I think that that's one of the things that Mark does very well is that if the allies don't, if the allied player doesn't prepare for uh, Japanese offensives in China, if they just ignore it, they say, oh, Chinese could never conquer, uh, the Japanese could never conquer China, they'll, that'll happen. But if the allies take precautions, such as keeping certain cards in their hand, et cetera, et cetera, pushing the, pushing the China track when they can, um, then it won't. But that means that you, you have to, as long as you prepare for, think, for historical eventualities, you have a chance of preventing bad things from happening. It's when you ignore certain things that uh, Mark sort of springs the trap on you, which is, um, which is what he does with China. Because China is just a track of, of Japanese divisions. How many Japanese divisions are there in China? You can pull them out, uh, but you can run China offensives. The fewer divisions you have there, the less likely your China offensive will have uh, of, of uh, succeeding. Now, you do have the, the Burma-India part, or specifically the Burma part, is that uh, if you, if you uh, close the hump and uh, keep allied uh, uh, air supply from China, they'll have much, you'll have a much better chance of a ground offensive succeeding. 
So yes, that's where the China Burma India link is, but uh, but it's a, it's a it's kind of a different story in itself. Yeah, it's a bit of an oddity because on the one hand you have this idea of there being an entire abstracted war happening in China that you don't really see. It's a strange thing. It took me a moment to realize what was happening. I had to look up in the rules because the map represents there being all these coastal Chinese cities. And I was thinking, well, I have to worry about those. But there's actually specific rules even governing those. Uh, they basically can't be entered uh, via, uh, like, by, I think it's like, you have some Chinese nationalist armies uh, under your control. But it's not like you can just use those to start rolling up Japanese possessions in China right. if they're unguarded. They can't leave mainland China. Right. Uh, but then the other thing is, so on the one hand... You do have some uh, Chinese nationalist uh, like armies represented there on the map, and you can move them around, uh, you know, in Burma and their their corner of China. But that is not actually representing the larger war that's happening in China at all, right? Um, right. And so that so that's a bit of an odd thing, where like China's happening in two places. One is it's, it's happening on this track uh, that is sort of you know, how many Japanese divisions are there in China and how likely, how close to complete capitulation uh, is, is, is China uh, at, at this moment. And then you also have these Chinese armies that like have an existence almost entirely independent of that track. They don't really have much to do there at all. Uh, being very limited, but potentially very helpful partners for the Commonwealth forces in Burma. Which is how they sort of were. Uh, if you play Kim Conger's uh, fantastic game Nemesis, you'll you'll see that the Chinese uh, can really help you out in a spot, but they don't help you out that much. Yeah, um, and now I think you've you you talked a little bit about this. I think on Twitter uh, a couple weeks ago. So Markham and punts on. China a little bit, it, what it what it's doing at this point on the strategic level. Uh, but then you also sort of made the argument that by and large, like, first of all, I do wonder, even if we had perfect information about what that conflict looked like, I do wonder just how achievable it is to make a game that operates on the scale that is coherent, uh, covering everything from operations in China all the way through South Pacific, it it would be quite a game. Uh, but then there's this further issue of, um, one, the campaign is probably underappreciated by Western audiences, uh, particularly American audiences, who, who tend to view the Pacific War in terms of a few notable islands uh, and a few major car carrier actions. But then you also sort of intimated that there's also just a really spotty historical record of the land war in China itself between uh, Japan and the various Chinese factions. Yeah. I mean, it's, at least in English there is. And I think, I think that actually is the case uh, in, in uh, other languages. Uh, there, there really, you know, there really is, there is no military history. There is no military history of the Chinese, uh, of the Sino-Japanese war uh, in English. Like an actual military history, like the way that you would understand, yeah. um, you know, Barbarossa. Know. Yeah, or 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 Costello's Pacific yeah. War, like a book that just says, "Here's here's what happened. Here are the battles. Here's there there doesn't exist. 
Um, there are books about China during wartime. Uh, many of them are sort of social political histories or, you know, political military histories, but they're not, they don't really touch the military part except as it relates to the political part. Uh, there, you know, study of Chiang Kai-shek, there's Barbara Tuckman's uh, book about, uh, about uh, Joe Stilwell. Um, it's, um, it, it's, it's just not a conflict that has a real, it's, it's like, a, it's kind of like the, um, the Baltic Crusades uh, in English. I mean, there's, there's no, actually, even then the Baltic Crusades are, are better documented in English because, uh, between Christensen and Orban, there, there are some good books here, here, there's nothing, there's just nothing. Um, so, and like you said, I don't know how you'd make that game work. There's a game called War of the Suns, which is a, uh, it's an attempt to just model the land war, which, um, I haven't been able to, it, it seems a little convoluted and i um i haven't played it against anyone so I, I i hesitate i really don't like making comments about games that i haven't played against an opponent because you know people think that they know how a game works when they play it themselves and then of course you know you play it against an opponent it's a completely different game uh that's why you have that's why people play test games and don't just play it themselves and designers decide that you know we'll just release this game um but i don't think you could fit the nature of the campaign in China, you'd have to have like a separate China phase or something like that, yeah. which I could imagine would make the game very weirdly paced. Um, so something else though, we, that I realize now, uh, especially as the hour is getting late, we've left out a huge thing, a hugely important thing that oh explains this what game. Is that? Uh, air naval combat resolution and combat mm -hmm. resolution in general, but air naval combat is where it is most exaggerated. Um, and the idea being that it is very hard in this game to predict what is going to happen. Uh, even yeah. more so, like, for instance, you might be used to thinking about war games in terms of uh, a traditional like combat resolution table, right? Where like, you know, you'll roll two d six, and if you roll a twelve, you'll get a very edge case scenario. But by and large, as you sort of look at what the outcomes of those rolls will be, uh, there's a pretty broad distribution of outcomes that are the most likely to happen. And then there's a lot of like smaller deviations from it. And then a very few, like very unlikely edge cases, but by and large, you have the sense of, you know, if these, you know, if these four divisions clash in battle, if these two fleets clash in battle, roughly they're going to both land a couple punches and the cost of the, the butcher's bill will be roughly predictable. Empire of the sun is, perhaps this is the most this is the most singular aspect of this game, and I'm sure I've ever seen a game this the swingy is the way I'd put it. Empire of the Sun, when you have clashes between equal forces, uh in terms of like air and naval forces, it feels like absolutely anything could happen. Uh it it it, it very much and I and I think this is literally what it's trying to get at. It feels like you could have an equal exchange, a you know, an indecisive fight, or you could be the Japanese at Midway, where you did most things right. Yeah, you, you're 
you, your intelligence was your your codes were compromised a bit, and you were you were baited out a little bit. By, but by and large, a lot of things still went all right for you. And nevertheless, four carriers blew the hell up. Um, and because air and naval combat are often the first phase of each battle, uh, even if the even if land forces are involved, uh, and they are the key to a lot of the 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 actions in the South and and Central Pacific. Uh, in addition to that unpredictability about what the enemy is going to react with and how, and, uh, whether they'll be able to react at all, there's also an, un, a great deal of unpredictability about what that ensuing engagement might do to both forces. Uh, and we've played a bunch and we have seen some pretty wild distributions of outcomes. I think I've seen every combination of, uh, good luck, bad luck, and, you know, even luck uh, that I can imagine. And it radically changes the game each time. It's, it's wild. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and, and there's, interestingly enough, you know, the, 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 what, what Rob is saying is that what you do is you tally your, your strength and then you roll a die, and that die will tell you what percentage of your strength actually applies as damage to the other player and it can go any from in, in air naval combat it can go any from from one to a quarter and furthermore if you roll a nine the one allows you to um to um not avoid what's the word i want to uh, ignore a rule which uh requires you to damage all of a opponents units in combat before you start eliminating them you can just if, a, if you roll nine it's a critical hit and you can start eliminating units uh, rather than instead of having to to flip everything to his damaged side uh, before you kill something so you know you can imagine if if one if you have sides that have um equal uh equal strength so they have a hundred uh you know you can go anywhere from one side inflicting 25 and the other side inflicting 100 that to, to the other side inflicting 100 to 25 to both doing 25 to both doing 100 to one doing 100 and one doing 50 you know it's it's that kind of thing and uh, furthermore the the way in which damage is assessed uh depends on the defense value of the opposing units so you know if you have 25 points to deal and there are three units on the other side, each of which have a defense of 10. Well, you can damage two of them, but the third one, you know, you spend 10 to damage one. Okay, you've got 15 left. You get spend 10 to damage another one. You got five left. Oh, the third one has a defense of 10, and you've only got five points. So those five are wasted. So one of the, uh, you know, the, in, in many traditional war games, your count, your factor counting, try to, try to get a, a particular, uh, you know, odds ratio, right? I want to get two to one. I want to get three to one. In this game, you're factor counting to try to make sure that even if you roll a quarter or even if you roll a half, you will have enough points to, you know, damage the, this many enemy units or whatever, right? So if you, if the enemy has uh, 40 points of, you know, has, has four 10 point units, uh, you need to bring 40 points of, of, uh, of air naval uh, factors with you because if you roll a quarter, then you'll at least be able to damage one. If you roll, if you bring thirty-eight, well, that's that's not going to work. Uh, so uh, actually, would thirty-eight work? 
everything's rounded up in this game. So point being, if you, if you, uh, yeah, well, 38 would round to 19. So if you got a half, then you would only have, you would damage one and you'd, you'd waste another, uh, uh, 19 points. So that's the kind of factor counting that you're doing. You're trying to you're trying to sort of in in addition to all of the other things that you're you're thinking about for, you know, how many units are you activating? Or are they in range? And do you you know how far are they going to go? And who are you going to attack? You also are trying to put together combinations of units that would be effective against the defending units that you're planning on attacking. So there's a lot of that. Uh, to think about. And Mark actually provides a very handy uh, sheet in the game. It's, it's the uh, the factor sheet where you can quickly look at, you know, what is a quarter of, you know, X number or Y number or what's a half. And I was, you know, I thought initially I was thinking, you know, what, Mark, I, I know what a half of, you know, 50 is, or I can, you know, I can do this math. The point is, actually to go the reverse way. So if I see that Mark has 17 points, of you know defense or 38 points of defense or something i can very quickly go through and see what my thresholds are for the you know full half quarter uh so that i can assign uh units uh effectively so that's a that's actually a nice little tool and that actually dovetails very well with the role attrition plays in this game so even though you look at all this and it might feel like well a lot of this combat then is is awfully is awfully randomized it's awfully swingy um what's what's that all doing is it is it just to model the fact that midway could have gone any one of a million ways not really i mean that's part of it like it's it's exciting to, to have a game where like midway could go a midway or midway equivalent engagement could go a couple different ways uh and and alter the course of the uh of the strategic campaign but the other part of this is you know and as you were alluding to there you start thinking a lot, and particularly as the allied player, uh, but also opportunistically as the Japanese player, you start thinking a lot about what sure things might be worth it. And that math starts to change as the allied war machine, the American war machine in particular, really starts to spin up. Uh, but for one thing, a lot of Japanese units, particularly their best units, are irreplaceable. You will see a yellow pip on the counters. And mm -hmm. that means that once that, like, every turn, each side gets to reintroduce uh, or repair some steps uh, of basically, you know, you can, a, a damaged unit, a, a flipping unit. For those of you who don't know the steps terminology, uh, flipping a full strength unit to damaged uh, means you've eliminated a step. The next step you remove removes the piece from the board. It's dead. Um, each time you have a new turn in this game, uh, you'll be sort of given some steps back that you can allocate basically to like this represents replacements and repairs uh happening over the course of this war but the japanese can't undo damage to certain units um there's some carriers they get in the beginning of the game that once they are damaged or once they are sunk they are gone there are also some particularly powerful uh like army air force air air units uh, the Japanese have, uh, including just an absolutely like beastly uh, unit in Burma that, again, 
as long as that is flying at full strength, is sort of the terror of the skies. But if you can eliminate it, and it's certainly not immortal, it has a high attack value, but in terms of its defense, it's just about like anybody else. Uh, if you can damage that thing, Japanese player's never going to get that super unit back. You know, it's, it's like taking a hero off the board, almost. Um, and so what starts happening over the course of this game is that you start thinking a lot about the chances you're willing to take to maybe just inflict some of that damage that the Japanese player can't repair, that the other guy, that the other guy just is not going to be able to, to get this back. And that logic begins to become really predominant as the war continues and the reinforcements for the uh, Allied side really begin to outpace uh, what, what the Japanese are getting. There are strategic dy dynamics here as well in terms of uh, as the Japanese lose strategic uh, resource locations, uh, I believe they start losing hand size, correct? Your, the Japanese hand size depends on the, uh, the number of uh, resource X's that they yeah. have. And they only have a full hand if they have all 14 of the resource X's on the map or 13 out of the 14. Right. Um, so that's, that, that's another issue that will also start to constrain the Japanese player as they are slowly driven back uh, across the map. But uh, in terms of this attrition issue, it, it really begins to uh, you know, snowball out of control. Particularly, I would say, in 1944, we only played this scenario. We only got this far, I think, once. Uh, but it was really eye-opening the degree to which the sort of delicate balance of forces in 1943 begins to become heavily unbalanced in 1944. And now the, the game sort of changes in terms of uh, just how much can the American forces pin the Japanese down and inflict some hammer blows? Mm -hmm. uh, and how much can the Japanese forces basically avoid getting cornered into those kinds of fights? Uh, and and yeah. just make the Americans like work for it, uh, and, and and take and and take longer, um, yeah. And I, I I will I will say like, and I alluded to this earlier. I never fully understood uh, how much like in some ways like modern carrier operations the nineteen forty four American fleet feels like compared mm -hmm. to the type of fleet that fought at Midway. Um, it's, yeah. it's complete sea change uh, once you start getting Essex-class carriers as the allies, and you start getting a lot of them. Uh, and that changes the complexion of the game at a stroke. Okay, yeah, I agree with you. I mean, it just, it's, it's, uh, it, the, the Japanese really go from being a, uh, a, a, a military on the move to just desperately trying to hang on uh, and, uh, you know, hold on to certain islands and just it, the, the end of the game really does be, does come down to to the allies trying to uh to sort of hem the japanese in at the end uh have these these sort of last uh invasions where uh the allies can set up uh, strategic bombing bases so they can de deliver the bomb which by the way may not happen uh or blockade the home islands but um yeah the japanese don't have the staying power to uh to really hold out through the whole game, which is, I think, another one of Mark Herman's, uh, I don't know what you call it, one of his theses, which I think is a, is a, is a standard historically accepted, uh, you know, sort of reality. And we should talk a little bit about that, actually, uh, because 
this is the other aspect is when we talk about victory uh, in this game, I think one of the theses, and this is certainly not controversial at all, is that long-term, this is not a winnable war for Imperial Japan. Um, no, it's certainly this not. Is, this is not something where they are going to uh, secure a military victory over the United States and force a uh, force a surrender or a or a uh, peace uh, a, 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 an incredibly favorable peace. Um, now, admittedly, that can happen if you screw up enough in this game. The U.S. can lose the will to fight. Uh, if, for instance, as as I did uh, in 1943, you take some incredibly unwise fights. And then the Japanese player uh, just gets a series of uh, truly gobsmackingly uh, perfect rolls. Uh, you can you can throw away the entire United States uh, Pacific Fleet two three times over the course of this game, and at that point, the American public does seem to have enough. Uh, and <laughs> as well as well as the player, has yeah. Enough. At that point, it is not. It is not, it is a less fun game when there is no longer anything to activate. Right. Uh, but uh, so let's talk a little bit about what this game is saying about what the Japanese player and the U.S. player are playing for. Because in some ways, there is a strategically foregone conclusion here, uh, and we're sort of haggling over the timing of it. But what what is sort of the argument being made? What is what does victory here mean for uh, Imperial Japan? Well, I think the argument being made is that, uh, you know, it's the thing that the Japanese sort of premised their war on, which was that they could take all these, you know, possessions and then fight a delaying war, which would be so costly for the Americans that they would basically just say, okay, fine, uh, you know, we'll let you keep the Dutch East Indies. We'll let you keep these things that don't, uh, that are, that are essential to your strategic survival. Uh, you know, you can, you know, okay, fine. We get the Philippines back, but you get, you know, Sumatra and Java. Um, you know, you have a free hand in China, whatever that kind of thing. Um, and that's really what, that's, that's really what the end of the game represents. If the, if the U.S. can't close it out, then the U.S. basically just runs out of time and says, you know, we're not, we just don't have what it takes to prosecute this war to a conclusion. Japan, you know, will negotiate, you you know, you, you'll, you, Vietnam is yours, uh, you know, that kind of thing. I think by and large that works here uh, because this, this does sort of, I, I think that's a perfectly fine way of, of framing it. it it just mostly becomes about uh well directly there is sort of a timetable issue here there's there's almost a schedule you need to keep as the allied player uh in order to stay in the war now this doesn't matter quite as much for shorter scenarios um, I don't think. Again, like in the 43 scenario, I definitely pushed the boundaries a couple times of things that can induce an early termination of the game. Uh, mm -hmm. But if you're playing a longer-term scenario, if, for instance, you were playing the Allies and trying to reverse uh, the gains of the Japanese in 1942 and have this thing sewn up uh, as was achieved historically in 1945, um, you can't just stand pat and build up forces. And then in 1945, when you've got a massive fleet, just like steamroll across the Pacific and just win the game. You cannot do that 
because one of the other things, in addition to that whole card-driven mechanic that forces you to do island hopping, one of the other things you need to do is you need to keep showing that the war is making progress. There is a progress of the war uh, requirement on the Allies every turn that the people back home need to see the Japanese sphere of influence being peeled back every turn. And if you were not doing that, if you were playing a passive campaign and saying, well, you know, eventually I'll just have like, you know, 50 Essex carriers and who gives a damn? Uh, well, it turns out you will lose the game because at that point it's people are not going to, to, to stand for a phony war. Right. Yep. I agree. I think it's a very, I think it, makes the game pacing great too, which is another thing about this game. It's really well paced. Uh, the last thing I'll bring up here, uh, just because it's, I think it's a nifty thing is that, and it's also uh, kind of variables to how much of a role it will play uh, from, from game to game, but there's an inter-service rivalry uh, factor that is, that both sides are, are dealing with, which is basically that uh, as long as inter-service rivalry is in effect, and both sides start with with uh, inter-service rivalry in effect, the army command will not play nicely with naval command. And so if you were activating uh, with a card, unless that card has some special exceptions carved out in the event, uh, when you were doing a tr- standard activation with, with ops, you can only activate army or navy, yep. but not both. Yep. Right. Now, it's interesting. Mark says, by and large, you actually don't need to resolve this this tension at all. Um, now, that may be. There were definitely places where I badly wished, uh, particularly early in the war, that I could have had my fleet coordinating with a spare U.S. Army Corps uh, that mm-hmm. was sitting around. Sure. And... Eventually, you can do stuff like that once inter-service rivalry is resolved and everybody has basically agreed to the same uh, plan for the war. What do you, what do you think of this? Because as I'm as I'm reading it, to a degree, there is a great deal of bickering and pettiness on the U.S. side when I read about you know sort of the councils of war. I don't know that in the stuff I've read, at least, that it was that toxic between say MacArthur and Nimitz. Uh, you know, in, in terms of how resources would be spent or their ability to uh, coordinate. It sounds like MacArthur and Bull Halsey had a pretty decent working relationship uh, as commanders. And yet, uh, inter-service rivalry is this major factor uh, that the game makes it kind of a pain in the ass to, to lift. Yeah, but MacArthur uh, and the Army Command and uh, Ernest King didn't get along so well. Uh, and I think that, um, and, and it wasn't just them, it was, it was sort of King and George Marshall and, um, I, I, there's a good book. I have a, I have a good book that could explain a lot of this. Uh, it's, it's, uh, called Pacific War Strategies or something like that. Um, I will find it. It's, um, it, <clears throat> there, there's a, there's a lot of, um, uh, yes, certain, certain personages did have, uh, di- didn't necessarily hate each other, um, but there was uh, there was an institutional uh, sort of difference that wasn't just going to get resolved by you know uh, MacArthur and Nimitz having a beer together, and um, and this I mean this really sort of went back to the to the foundational uh, elements of the U.S. Armed Services. So I think it's 
I think you couldn't have a game without inter-service rivalry. I like the way that Mark deals with it. I think actually it might be a little too easy to uh, avoid because uh, all you need to do is discard a three card. Now that is a significant penalty. Uh, and in a scenario that that's, uh, you know, that's one out of seven cards you're going to play in a turn, that could be a significant detriment, especially if the other player uh, gets to run two operations in a row. So, but in a game where you have a, uh, a, th a thing as important as inter-service rivalry that's resolved by an event card, and you don't draw the event card, you know, players can complain that, uh, well, I would have won, but, uh, you know, I couldn't do anything about this inter-service rivalry. So I think, I think Mark's done sort of a good job of balancing those two elements and uh, giving you a way out uh, if you don't have the event. But uh, it's just... Uh, it's a, it's a, uh, I, I think he does it well. And I, and I think that it, that, that element of, I mean, why was there, a, why was there a drive through, uh, you know, through the South Pacific and the Philippines and another dro drive through the central, uh, central Pacific and then the Marianas. And, uh, I don't, I don't think that, uh, uh, those were necessarily both, I, I think were those both necessary? I don't know. There's a, there's, there's, there are some good books about that, and I, I encourage you to read them, and I will, I will recommend you can put them uh, as a sort of reading list for the podcast. But, um, but I'm glad that Mark included it in the game. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I think, like, overall, this has been one of the most satisfying wargaming experiences I've ever had. Um, and it is rare that a game gets this far under my skin. Uh, this mm -hmm. is not, this is, I swear to God, not an exaggeration at all. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. At least twice I have had dreams about <laughs> uh, planning my own version of Operation Cartwheel. Like I've uh -huh. woken up thinking about, okay, but if they sort you out of Numea, how uh -huh. am I going to be able to right. deal with the air cover umbrella out of Rabal? Uh, yeah. yeah, I've had like this is this is one of those games that gets under your skin, and you yep. find yourself thinking about like lines of play and like different series of moves uh, you could try to make, and that is unusual for me in a war game. A lot of times, war games like you you set it up and like stuff happens and it's cool and there's fighting and there's all sorts of action. This is a game where like I've seen the same scenario multiple times, and it has gone so differently in these different times that I find myself thinking constantly about like, well, what if I tried this? And it, it, it keeps me coming back. Wait till you play the campaign game. Well, we will, uh, we'll have to do that on our must see TV. Yeah. Uh, or, or you know what that means? Means, uh, Rob Zachney in Portland, 2019. You know, I, I, I have been thinking it's about time for a trip. Uh, real quickly, uh, Bruce, what was the name of the vassal? Who created the vassal module uh, that we were using? Uh, so Francisco. So Francisco. And I apologize in advance. Uh, he, he's, I believe, he's Spanish. So it's Francisco Colmenares or Colmenares. Okay. Uh, I, I hope I'm not crushing your name too badly there, Francisco. My apologies. Uh, but it is a beautiful module. Uh, it recreates the aesthetics of the game. Uh, wonderfully, and uh, once we get not only that, but it, but functionally, it it, it does a nice job of keeping. Uh, he he updated it very recently to uh, to fix one of my my biggest pet peeves, which is that the uh, the control flags and the counters were on the same layer. Now they're on different layers, which is just beautiful. Yeah, uh, so that's been a wonderful 
way that to, to enable us to play this game together, despite being thousands of miles apart. Uh, so if you are curious about it and you have somebody, if you know somebody who has the game, who's willing to teach you, uh, it is a wonderful way to have an experience that's almost as good uh, as being there in person. And I don't know if your fingers aren't very clever with, uh, with, with counters, maybe it's a little better in some respects. Um, but it has been a delight uh, playing this game and has certainly inspired a lot of new historical research around these parts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm glad. So, and, and to give you a quick uh, bibliography of, of stuff that, that Bruce has had me looking at uh, lately for this, for, for this show and to help me help guide me, guide me with my decisions. Uh, I think the Hornfisher series on the U S Naval operations uh, in world war two has, has, has been a particular treat uh, Neptune's Inferno and the Fleet of Flood Tide are both really remarkable campaign studies and uh, also feature some incredibly evocative uh, depictions of naval warfare. Um, it's, uh, they're incredible. So those, seems, those seem like uh, good places to start. That would be where I would recommend if you are a noob at this and you need a little bit of... Uh, you know, ground level historical flavoring, uh, Bruce. If if people need the big picture, if people need to really like have that sort of God's eye view of Empire of the Sun and and the war in the Pacific, uh, what are some books you would point them to? Well, the best the best history of of the war in the Pacific is without a doubt H. P. Wilmot. Uh, he wrote uh, Empires in the Balance and Barry and the Javelin, but it only goes basically through the end of forty two, um, and he never finished his trilogy which was, I think, actually not going to actually become a trilogy. I think he was going to do, he was going to do up to through 43 in the second book, but it just didn't happen. And there are two great books, uh, you, but uh, doesn't finish the war. Uh, Costello's Pacific War was actually, the thing the first one-volume uh, history in English. Uh, it's a pretty good book. Um, I actually like um, Vandervart's book, uh, can't remember what it's called. It's called uh, ah, it's just called the Pacific Campaign, the U.S.-Japanese War, nineteen forty-one to forty-five. Okay, it's from nineteen ninety-two. It's a good book um, because it talks about China, and it's also by uh, a Dutchman who um, is Van der Vaat. Sorry, not Van der Vaart. It's Van der Vaat, Daniel Van der Vaart, uh, and he's a uh, he's a Dutchman, so he uh, um, he does talk about i think he has a better idea for what the you know the sort of the 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 eastern uh the, the emphasis on the east rather than the dutch east indies uh, although i don't remember that being a particularly uh, big part of the book um what else there's a game a game a book called hirohito's war uh, which is a big one from the japanese stand uh japanese perspective uh, Paul S. Dahl wrote a book called um, uh, Battle History of the Imperial Japanese Navy that was Naval Institute Press. I think that was a um, that was the first book that was uh, sort of from the Japanese perspective at all. Uh, and there's stuff like John Toland. Um, uh, um, there's, there's just a whole bunch. I probably just write out a, yeah. a bunch of books. There's uh, Eric Berger uh, did a Companion, Touched by Fire, and um, Fire in the Sky, which were uh, the land war and the air war in the South Pacific. Um, yeah, there's a there's a ton of good. I mean, there's a ton of good books about the Pacific. You just have to find them, and there are no good books about China. 
All right. Uh, well, that will do it for this week. We'll be back next week with more strategy discussion. Uh, Thrones Ahead is produced, as always, by Michael Hermes and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show and discuss this episode with our community at thrones.ahead.net or follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash 3MA. Finally, Thrones Ahead is supported by listeners just like you on Patreon. You can learn more at patreon.com slash 3MA. We'll be back next week with another episode of Three Moves Ahead. Until then, for Bruce, this is Rob Zachney saying goodnight. <laughs>